0: The Daily Rios Digest, November 7th, 2021 Meanwhile Monday This is the third installment of Meanwhile Monday, a continuing look at the monthly column seen throughout DC Comics starting in late 1982 as penned by managing editor Dick Giordano. Now, these columns give some great behind-the-scenes history and context to DC Comics as a publisher, Uh, in the 80s, and I'm using this as a way to explore all of that publishing history. So this is the third column, found in comics with cover dates of April 1983, which means these books were released mostly in January uh, of 1983. This column was probably written somewhere between October and December of 1982. If you want to read the column for yourself, you can check out comics from that cover date month, such as Action Comics 542, All-Star Squadron 20, Eric Son of Thunder 20, uh, Arion, Lord of Atlantis number 6, Captain Carrot 14, DC Comics Presents 56, Detective Comics 525, Flash 320, Jonah Hex 71, Justice League of America 213, Legion of Superheroes 298, New Adventures of Superboy 40, Night Force number 9, Sergeant Rock 375, Warlord 68, Weird, War Tales 122, Wonder Woman 302, and probably so many more. So the column starts out, the new DC is on the move. And if our greatly increased comic sales, volume of fan mail, and response in the fan press weren't proof enough, the recent pot shots aimed our way from the editorial pages of our major competitor is the frosting on the cake that provides proof positive. No one will bother to take potshots at you unless you represent a threat to their position and or security. If you expect the fire to be returned from this page, though, you're in for a disappointment. That kind of battle is undignified. So this is uh, Dick Giordano talking about, I assume, Marvel Comics, right? Uh, Probably within their bullpen bulletin page. Uh, taking shots at the distinguished uh, distinguished competition. And, uh, you know, DC was always far more conservative when it came to that back-and-forth rivalry, so it doesn't surprise me uh, that, you know, the company isn't named, uh, that they don't say anything in, re- in return. Um, however, they do... So, a little bit later in the column, Dick Giordano talks about uh, how some publishers tend to trumpet a little bit too much about hype and stuff that they're putting out. But at DC, if they do that, they're going to make sure that they can back it up. So, you know, you, you sort of have to look at that and go, well, that's probably their way of kind of, uh, you know, sending a retort to to Marvel. Um, but, you know, done in a much different, Uh, you could say, classier way, much in a subtle way, I don't know. The column then continues. There's a section here uh, that states, I've been in the comics business for better than 30 years, and I've never had more fun than I'm having right now. And I've never been more enthusiastic about comics and the future of comic books than I am at the moment that I write this. We've just seen the completed first first issue of Ronin by Frank Miller, and may we say that it's a milestone in comic history, a comic saga that will take your breath away, an an unparalleled event that must be seen to believed. Neat. And that first issue of uh, Ronin was meant to hit in uh, April of 1983. Now, in terms of the hype that they were just talking about, you know, that certainly sounds like hype. But to some degree, uh, you know, that series was kind of a milestone and was kind of uh, a stepping stone to larger things. Certainly a stepping stone to Dark Knight Returns, a stepping stone to different formats in terms of publishing and what you can do with a printed comic, um stepping stone from Daredevil Frank Miller to to Dark Knight Frank Miller and beyond. Uh, so sure uh, I'll give him that little leeway there. This is the first time that Ronin was mentioned in one of these columns, although in the very first column there was talk about upcoming miniseries in 1983, upcoming titles that were on a different paper stock so uh, Giordano might have been, alluding to Ronin, but um, this is the first time it actually uh, gets mentioned in, in a column. And then we get a checklist, confirmed and special for 1983, starting off with Ronin, 48 pages, full color, no ads, six issues in all. Number two, Green Arrow miniseries, which I believe was also mentioned in that first column, by Mike W. Barr and Trevor Von Eden and Eden is called here an exciting young artist. First issue would drop February 4th or, or excuse me, would drop in February, four issues in all and that did happen on that timeline. Number 3, a DC Comics Presents annual by Elliot S. Magan, Alex Toth, and Terry Austin on sale in April. Taking a look at some records here and my own uh, inventory. Yep. There was an annual that was released in April of 1983, DC Comics presents Annual 2 featuring Superman and Superwoman, the first appearance of Superwoman, the first appearance of this of this particular Superwoman identity, but not the first appearance of her alter ego. Kristen Wells. Kristen Wells first appeared in the Miracle Monday novel by Elliot S. Magin years before this. So this annual, as listed in the Meanwhile column, was meant to be written by Elliot S. Magin uh, with art by Alex Toth and Terry Austin. Well, that's not the case. When it actually hit the stands, we got Elliot S. Magin, but the penciler was Keith Pollard, inker was Mike DiCarlo. Uh, and Todd Smith, and then letterer Todd Klein, colorist Gene D'Angelo. So somewhere along the way from when this column was written at the end of 1982, and when this annual was released, we got an artist switch. Apparently, unless, unless Giordano was just listing something incorrectly, but we went from Alex Toth and Terry Austin to Keith Pollard, Mike DiCarlo, and Todd Smith. Very interesting there. Now, Toth would be uh, a co-artist on a later DC Comics Presents issue featuring the Challengers of the Unknown, and that was written by Bob Rizakis, uh, with Jack Kirby and Alex Toth and inker Greg Theakston, um, and that was from 1985. So, uh, again, not entirely sure, you know, why there was a switch, but... Um, Uh, An interesting little behind-the-scenes tidbit there. And then number four, we have a Batman annual coming in 1983 by Mike W. Barr and Michael Golden, and it says, on sale in the summer. Now this would turn into a special, uh, one of my favorite Batman specials, uh, really one of my favorite Batman stories ever. And it, would be, uh, it wouldn't be it would be released until January of 1984, so there you go. Um, an insight into how sometimes you can announce something, or at least know something is in the works, have it on the schedule, and then it gets delayed. Maybe because of the artwork, who knows. So this would be the Batman special from 1984. The title of the story is The Player on the Other Side. By Mike W. Barr, Michael Golden, inker Mike DiCarlo, letterer Todd Klein, colorist Adrian Roy, featuring Batman, and featuring the character of The Wrath, uh, a, a youth who grew up pretty much in opposition to everything that Bruce Wayne was, right? Bruce Wayne was rich, and this character was poor. Uh, Bruce Wayne's parents were killed by a criminal, and this boy's parents were killed by, uh, I believe, if not both, one of them was killed by James Gordon, actually, as a young rookie cop. And it's just how their lives, uh, run, both in parallel and in opposition, and it is beautifully drawn. It's a really intriguing story. As I said, one of my favorite specials, one of my favorite Batman stories. So, um... Nice to see it get a nod here, and apparently was, as I said, supposed to come out summer of 1983, didn't come out till 1984. Number five, we have an Atom miniseries entitled Sword of the Atom by Jan Snad Gil Kane. First issue on sale in May for four issues. It would release in June of 1983, again maybe some slight delays. Uh, this isn't mentioned in the column, but this was such a successful miniseries, certainly one of my favorite DC miniseries of the 80s. It would be followed by three specials, and then The Adam would get uh, his own series again near the end of the 80s, Power of the Atom. But that series, not so good. Not so good. And then finally here on this checklist, uh, number six, JLA Avengers, Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, George Perez on sale in May of 1983. Whoops, that didn't happen. Uh, And as I mentioned in a previous Meanwhile Monday, we will get some Meanwhile columns featuring a whole flurry of behind-the-scenes stuff that went on on DC's side of things, um, I guess, you know, within the next year or so. So I'm looking forward to that. Now, even though this is the third column of Meanwhile, it is not signed by Dick Giordano. But I, I think those first two segments in the column w- were by Dick Giordano, especially because, you know, he mentions earlier, he says, you know, I've been in this business 30 years. So the last segment is um, a, a part about Brooke Shields Visiting DC Comics in 1982. And at the end of it, it signed Mike Flynn, Promotion Manager. So I have to assume that that would be something that Mike Flynn would be associated with. Um, But it was kind of odd because, you know, we didn't get the usual Dick Giordano send-off, you know, uh, where he usually says thank you and good afternoon. That first part feels like it's coming from Dick Giordano. This last part... Could be from Mike Flynn, or is it because there's a Brooke Shields photo within the column, and maybe the photo is being, ref- uh, you know, the acknowledgement is Mike Flynn, but it's all the way down on the bottom. So I'm, I'm a little confused. I think this last segment is by, by Mike Flynn um, and not G- Dick Giordano, or maybe the whole thing is, and that name is just in the wrong spot. I don't know. Um, but I'm going to go with that this last part is written by Mike Flynn. So first of all, who is Mike Flynn? (laughs) I'm not sure if it's the same Mike Flynn that helped to start the Legion Outpost fanzine with Harry uh, Brotiges. They were the creators of that fanzine uh, when they were younger. Maybe he eventually got a job with DC Comics. And when I did a search, the only thing that really came up is a is an entry over on Todd Klein's blog. You can go to KleinLetters.com, where Todd Klein was trying to map out uh who had what office when DC Comics moved to 666 Fifth Avenue in December of 1982. And that was something I talked about in the second, meanwhile, uh Monday segment. And um Todd Klein has like this breakdown of, you know, where was Julia Schwartz and where was Karen Berger and where was this creator and where was this editor? Mostly going by memory, but then there are a ton of pictures from back then which are great of all of these people and Mike Flynn is included Uh, and he looks young. He looks too young to have written that line that I mentioned earlier about being in the business for 30 years, right? So if it's the same Mike Flynn from the Legion Outpost, that's kind of cool. The segment itself, as I mentioned, is a visit from Brooke Shields because Brooke Shields was a spokesperson in the early 80s for the American Lung Association, and DC was helping them out to create something called Super Stuff, which was a, a uh, educational learning kit all about asthma and it included things like you know instructional sheets for parents a fold-out educational leaflet uh, a game uh, all kinds of um, activity book stuff and some t-shirt iron-on stuff and stickers and paper dolls etc etc and apparently dc was instrumental in helping um, the american lung association put all this stuff together And when I did a search on YouTube, you can find early videos, early commercials of Brooke Shields. She had to have been... uh, When she visited D.C. at the time, she had to be about 17. She turned 17 in 1982. Some of those commercials, I believe, go back to even 1981, where she would have been about 15 or 16. And she's doing these commercials where she's talking about, I don't know, a friend or something. And she's disgusted by... The knowledge that they smoke, and and the tagline of "smokers are losers" was a big deal. Um, eventually, Brooke Shields would wind up in front of a Congress panel during the Reagan administration because they didn't think she was an appropriate ro- spokesperson, I guess. So the um, commercials were held for a little bit, but then they were they were ultimately released anyway. So Brooke Shields came to the DC offices along with some parents and some kids, and they made a day of it, and they made a promotional tour of it, and they did exercises, all of this stuff to, uh, you know, promote um, good health and and asthma, etc. And the picture of Brooke Shields in the Meanwhile column, she's reading a Superman comic, and I managed to figure out that it is Superman 372, and the blurb on the cover says how can a phantom superman save these kids and it's a bunch of kids trying to run from like this giant tidal wave and the back of the issue is an ad for a lone ranger western toy uh, western town toy set that you could send away for for free and it had like a big giant free on the top of it so between those two things you could barely see the cover but that back ad I figured, uh, I managed to point figure out that it was Superman 372. That issue shipped in March of 1982. So um, she was pictured with that issue. And then that wraps up this third column by Dick Giordano and Mike Flynn, or maybe it's all by Mike Flynn since it's all promotional stuff. I mean, that blurb right at the top that I mentioned, the new DC is on the move, right? Like that was their tagline for... I don't know, for most of 1982, maybe going into 1983. You know, eventually we would get the new DC, There's No Stopping Us Now. Uh, and and after the crisis, I believe we got DC, the original universe. So either this whole thing was by Mike Flynn, some of it was by Dick Giordano, I don't know. Um, but I'm going to say that only the last one, the last part was Mike Flynn. Also, they mentioned that there was going to be a Superman episode commercial uh, all about uh, smoking or asthma, uh, about asthma, I think it is. And I did find it on YouTube, and I will include it uh, probably at the end of the digest, like I usually do, throwing in little surprise snippets here and there. So I'll drop that at the end of the episode. TV Tuesday. Okay, come on. You had to have known that I was going to watch Squid Games just like all the millions of other people (laughs) that watched Squid Games. So I watched it in the uh, previous two weeks. Uh, I was watching it at home, but then I was so engrossed in it that I started to watch it on the train to work back and forth. Uh, So I was able to burn through those episodes fairly quickly. Um you know come on i mean if you've seen it and and you enjoy it then you certainly know uh you know just how wonderful it was and how unique and different and even if it's not wholly original it it, it was it was a moment it was like watching it, it was like watching something um newish um or different enough from what has come before in any kind of, like, similar genre, but just fascinating. Fascinating to watch. It was like, I don't know, like watching the, like watching that first season of Lost, or like watching the first season of Stranger Things, or whatever, you know? It just really hooked me, and that first episode, that first game that they played in Squid Games, I stood up, my mouth was open. I was in shock. I loved it. I, I really did. I just had a really good time just immersing myself in the story and how it was filmed and the characters and not caring about, you know, I, I wasn't taking notes. I was just watching it and finding that I was getting surprisingly attached to certain characters and who was going to win, even though you can kind of get a sense of who was going to at least be in the top four or top three. I'm sure if you listen to any kind of pop culture podcast, or you visit a, visit a website or whatever, you you've you've spoken about this, you've heard about it, you've spoken to friends with it. You know, I'm not going to come up with anything new here. It's you know, like everybody else, it was shocking, it was fun, it was funny. I did not watch the subdiversion, I watched, excuse me, I didn't watch the dub diversion I watched the subdiversion, so I could hear. The Authentic Voices, Episode 6, Whoo, so emotional, so good, and it was great to see characters reach their ending, whatever that means, right, one way or another. For me, the thing that I wanted to talk about here uh, on a TV Tuesday segment, an element of the show that felt both familiar and also made me feel kind of proud that I recognized this kind of stuff in it, even though it's, you know, again, it's not like it's a great mystery or whatever. But I had fun um, settling into this little bit of discovery when it comes to the characters. Because really all of the characters in this show fit a certain um, familiarity when it comes to, like, manga, when it comes to anime, when it comes to any ensemble show, right? Um, So you had the main character who's like, you know, down on his luck. Uh, He has a mother, so there's an older character. Of course, this down on the luck guy has a a good looking best friend who seems to have their life together. There's an old man, possibly a fool, possibly a sage. Uh, There's other... Uh, representatives of women, such as older women, workers, shopkeepers, mothers. Of course, you get like a younger woman who has an who has an even younger brother that she has to take care of. That's very familiar. And then there's even a younger girl, younger girl than her, a mature woman who is often, you know, up the butt of many jokes. You have a thug, you have a villain or an antagonist, and then of course that thug has a gang of bumbling fools, you know, where one of them is kind of gross and lecherous and one of them is dark and stoic and and doesn't show expressions, you know. The doctor, the cop, um the boss of of the squid, all of this is kind of it felt very familiar and and I liked that a lot, almost to the point where I guess if you would watch some of it without any kind of translation, you would get a sense of how these roles fit together, because they are familiar across many different stories and many different genres. I mean, it's no different than, say, you know, something like Star Wars, where all of these characters kind of fit a certain aspect. The youth, the rogue, the princess, the sage, the villain, the bumbling friends, you know, it's all there. It's all there. And and this all really stuck out to me in a good way. You know, it made me think, yeah, I get it. This really helps me to understand who these characters are, even if we don't spend a lot of time with them, because it is an ensemble show. And then I get to be prepared for their journey because I might have an idea of how they think, or I might have an idea or a notion of how their stories might play out in the end, and yet it still turned out in some very surprising ways. Um, I was completely enthralled. It was a show that it, it still sticks in my mind, even though it's been a week or so since I've seen it. I keep coming back to it. I watch. I watch the games on YouTube. There's so many metaphors. There's so many parallels. Um, it made me think about, you know, what the hell kind of squid games are we going through that we don't even realize, you know, so good, just so good. And I, if you haven't seen it, but you've been meaning to see it, you should really see it soon. So you don't get spoiled by anything. It is a joy to watch. It is quite fun. It is quite dark, but I think there's a certain tone to it that keeps it from getting, um, from getting too dark, it's kind of weird to say, but, uh, you know, I felt, I came out of it in a positive way, you know, this show really could have made you hate life, and in a way it's supposed to, you know, it's supposed to make you think about the maze that we all live in, the squid games that we all live in, but to be, but by the end of it, as I said, I I came out of it with some, like, okay, I felt good about certain things, and I enjoyed this story. And um, and it's also, oh, one other aspect that I really liked was the use of music, jazz music, some other, you know, standards, um, music that might be familiar. and And it made me think about how much I dislike that in, say, like the Marvel Universe, where they use it for laughs more than anything, Or they use it just to say, "Ooh, wouldn't it be cool to do this?" Well, Squid Games use uses you know standard music or music that we know, but wow, in ways that manipulates you beyond just going, "Oh yeah, I know that song," and powerful ways. Um, I can think of several scenes where I was the music was making me like hold my breath, and it and it really informed what was going on and wasn't just wasn't just a soundtrack and wasn't just background music i mean it it was storytelling so beautifully done squid games go and see it Wednesday Night Fever. New Comics Wednesday Recommendations, I also have uh, some reviews at the end. This is for the week of November 3rd, starting off with Fanagraphics. The Lure Hardcover by Lane Milburn. In this sci-fi graphic novel, a group of idealistic young artists from Earth are commissioned to collaborate on a corporate art project for a planet that has been colonized for luxury living. The world's elite use the ocean planet of Lore as a luxury vacation hub for a decade. But when climate change threatens Earth's long-term habitability, many of those who can afford it move to Lore for good. When the opportunity to work there for a year is offered to visual artist Joe Sparta as part of a group of artists collaborating on a large-scale installation of public art, it seems like the chance of a lifetime. But then, Joe stumbles across a nefarious plot by her corporate benefactors and feels compelled to go public. Lore showcases rich visual imagination with the planet Lore itself an ever-seductive, otherworldly paradise against which spotlights themes of climate change, the disparity of wealth, and the value of art. This is for $29.99. From Titan, we have Cutting Edge, a trade paperback collecting Cutting Edge The Siren Song 1 and 2 and Cutting Edge The Devil's Mirror 1 and 2 for $29.99 by Francesco Dimitri uh, Mario Alberti. Tomb Raider meets The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen in a series by fantasy author and Italian author. Uh, Fantasy uh, author Dimitri and Italian artist uh, Alberti. Brought together by a clandestine corporation, the world's greatest minds are set a challenge of epic proportions, the due decathlon. Unlikely alliances are made in order to fulfill the quest and uncover the mysterious truth behind it all, but as the conspiracy is unveiled, how many will survive? From Top Shelf, we have Ballad for Sophie graphic novel by Felipe Melo and Juan Cavia. That music that you heard to intro this segment was composed for this uh, graphic novel and was also composed by Felipe Melo. So this story is about a young journalist prompts uh, a reclusive piano superstar to open up resulting in a graphic sonata exploring a lifetime of rivalry, regret, and redemption. 1933, in, in a small French village, a local piano contest brings together two brilliant young players, one privileged heir of a wealthy family and another one a janitor's son. One wins, one loses, and both are changed forever. Then in 1997, In a huge mansion, stained with cigarette smoke and memories, a bitter old man is shaken by the unexpected visit of an interviewer. Somewhere between reality and fantasy, Julienne composes, like in a musical score, a complex and moving story about the cost of success, rivalry, redemption, and flying pianos. When all is said and done, did anyone ever truly win, and is there any music left to play? Equally appealing to classical piano lovers and fans of sprawling literary historical fiction. And this is for $24.99. From Ahoy, we have My Bad Number One, Mark Russell, Bryce Ingman, uh, Peter Krause on art, uh, covers by Krause and by Jerry Ordway, a sharp superhero spoof, in Gravel City, the supervillain Emperor King has devised not only a sadistic death trap for his arch enemy, the Accelerator, but also the means to penetrate the top secrets of his other arch enemy, the Chandelier. An important new comic book universe begins here, we say sarcastically, $3.99. Again, Mark Russell comics are also a joy to read. Uh, he is co-writing here, so I had to give that a shot. Two from DC, we have The Human Target, number one of 12, by Tom King, and art by Greg Smallwood, featuring Christopher Chance, The Human Target, Lex Luthor, and, of course, Justice League International. Uh, This is where uh, an assassination attempt that Chance didn't see coming Leaves him vulnerable and left trying to solve his own murder, as he has 12 days to discover just who in the DCU hated Lex Luthor enough to want him dead. So we just wrapped up, you know, some stuff by Tom King, and now we're starting some new stuff by Tom King. And this looks to be beautifully drawn, and um, I am definitely getting physical copies of this uh, maxi series. And then also buying physical physical copies of the next book, Dark Knights of Steel, 1 of 12, Tom Taylor, Yasmine Putri. Yasmine's artwork is entirely the reason why I'm getting this. An entire medieval world will be forever changed when a spaceship crash lands from a doomed planet. Monarchs will die, kingdoms will raise, and what seemed the end of the world for many was only the beginning. An epic high fantasy story set in a DC universe where nothing is what it seems. This looks like it's going to be gorgeous, and Tom Taylor, you know, I don't read many Tom Taylor books, so this might be a first, Um, but I'm so looking forward to this. Now, there were some Marvel books that I thought I was going to mention, but apparently this is when Marvel was starting to have a lot of delays because of, you know, paper shortages, shipping, packaging, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. They put out a statement a while back to say like a whole bunch of books were, were going to be delayed. So they had a, a little bit of an output this week, but not a lot. But what I do have here from Marvel is... Marvel is the focus of my comic book reviews for uh, this segment where I read X-Men Legends number one and X-Men Legends number two. these came out in February and March of uh, of, of this year and the reason I wanted to read this is because so this title X-Men Legends um, is kind of like X-Men forever and other... Uh well, I mean, you could even say something like Batman 89 or whatever, but this is meant to, or or maybe like X-Men The Hidden Years, this is meant to pick up on threads from previous X-Men stories and previous X-Men creative teams going back to the eras that, you know, they were part of the X-Universe and trying to uh, wrap up long-standing subplots and story bits, etc. And these first two issues are by Fabian Nicieza and Brett Booth and company, and they are f- telling the story, wrapping up the story of Adam X Extreme, who was rumored to be uh, the Summer's brother, way the, the other Summer's brother, uh, not just Cyclops and Havok, not just Scott. And Alex, but also this character, way before we ever got Vulcan. Um, the very notion that there might be other Summer's brothers out there was from X Men 23 in the early 90s, where Mr. Sinister and Cyclops are having a conversation. And uh, Mr. Sinister says something like, You know, I'm just looking out for you and your brothers. And Cyclops, like, My brothers? Mr. Sinister says, uh, what? And he says, you said brothers, plural. And Mr. Sinister's like, oh, did I? Sorry, I meant your brother. So this notion of, oh, there's another Summer's brother out there. And then when we got this character of Extreme, everybody was saying, oh, it must be him. Then there was uh, rumor and speculation that Gambit was the other Summer's brother. And I think Chris Claremont wrapped that story up in... I don't know, like X-Men The End or some future X-Men story that I haven't read, and I didn't go look it up. So we have all of these Summer's brothers or Summer's siblings out there, and this X-Men Legends story finally wraps up, you know, the notion that, yes, Adam X is absolutely a half-brother. I thoroughly enjoyed these issues. They threw me right back to, you know uh 1993, 1994, 1995 both in dialogue and style and the way the art feels as you read it one reviewer called the artwork noisy and I was like yeah yeah that makes sense and I don't even think that's in a bad way but so so these stories in X-Men Legends as I said they're supposed to evoke a certain era And apparently, they are also supposed to be set within the continuity. So, I don't know how that's going to play out. So, of course, because I wanted to read these two issues, I was like, okay, let me go back and read the first appearance of Adam X, or Xtreme, from X-Force Annual Number 2, October of 1993, which was written by Fabian Nicieza, and uh, the artwork was by, well, in that issue, the artist is listed as Antonio Daniel which is tony daniel tony s daniel early in his career like super early like this is the second or third issue uh that his name is on and you i don't know if i could i don't know if i would have been able to tell that it was tony daniel's artwork it really just feels like you know someone said hey you need to draw like this image artist um but it feels like whisper down the lane right like it's not it. It's not the original. Im- it's not like Jim Lee art, but it's not even like someone who is like a knockoff of Jim Lee. It's like a knockoff of a knockoff of a knockoff of Jim Lee or Mark Silvestri or Rob Liefeld or whatever. Um, let's see. The inkers was Mark Pennington, Kevin Conrad, Brad Vincata, Bob Wyachek, Keith Williams, a lot of inkers, uh, Kevin Summers, Colors, Chris Eliopoulos, Letters. So we're introduced to Adam in this issue, Adam X, because he's going after a missing mutant named Michelle, uh, who has escaped from a project, uh, from a from a scientific project called Foundations, which is led by a guy named Martin Henry Strong. And of course, that puts Adam X uh, in conflict with X-Force. And we learn some things about him. Um, such as his powers where if he nicks you and you bleed, he's able to ignite the electrolytes in a person's blood and kind of shocks them and, and hurts them from the inside out. And he's extreme because that's what he becomes. Extremely angry, extremely powerful, extremely dangerous. Ooh, 90s. So this X-Force is composed of Cable, Sunspot, Boomer, Shatterstar, Warpath, Richter, Cannonball, Siren, the usuals. And we get a mystery. We get a mystery with Adam. He doesn't know who he is. He woke up on this planet. He obviously is alien. His words, word balloons are alien. There's something going on with markings on his eye, around his eyes. He just feels different, and he is a mutant. Now, apparently what's going on at this place, this foundations, is that they're trying to exterminate the mutant gene out of the genetic helix, which causes mutations. And we get this weird, uh, very surprising abortion allegory at the end here, because Cannonball is talking to Cable and says, look, foundations, they're trying to eliminate the genetic helix, which causes mutations. But an unborn child being denied the right to make the choice for themselves as to what they want to be, Cannonball's like, he's against that. He goes, he says, how can we let something like, like that happen to a living being which has no control over its own life and death? And then Cable follows up with something like, well, parents are making that decision all over. And in this scenario, you know, we what is he supposed to do? What is Cable supposed to do? Just sort of like tear everything down? Um, yeah, it's, it's really strange. I was like, Ooh, mm, clumsy, very clumsy. Not sure. This is the, not sure. That's really what you want to go for. Um, yeah, uh, a little too on the nose, a little too beating some beating readers over the head with that allegory. So that was, um, that was awkward. That was awkward at the end. So then, um, Adam X would show up again in X-Force 29 and 30 going up against Shatterstar and Arcade. We uh, you know I just sort of skimmed that issue. X-Men 38 and 39. Adam X is trying to find out some information about a whole bunch of different people. Um one of them being Mr. Sinister in disguise. So he's eventually led to Professor Xavier but never gets there. And in X-Men 39, um, written by Nicieza, artwork by Terry Dotson, Matt Ryan on Inker, this is where Adam X meets Philip Summers, who is Scott Summers' grandfather. And Adam saves Philip from a plane crash and manages to keep him alive. And at the end of the story, uh, Gene meets Adam and sort of does a little bit of a mind whammy jammy just to learn a little bit of information, but not a lot. And as I'm reading this, and as you get to the last couple panels, I'm like, oh my god, this connects to way back to the comics that I'm reading, the Cockrum and the Burn X-Men stuff from the mid-70s. Because it's the same situation when Jean meets Corsair for the first time. She kind of does like a, a mind scan and learns that Corsair is Scott's father, and she sort of does the same thing here, but you get the sense that she doesn't quite learn any information. It's sort of like a tease, and then at the end of this issue, someone is watching the X-Men on a view screen, and it looks like it's Eric the Red, and then someone is watching Eric the Red watch the X-Men, and it's Mister Sinister. And I was like, Oh my God, that's the same ending as X-Men '97 from 1975, where Stephen Lang was watching the X-Men, and Eric the Red was watching Stephen Lang. So I was like, Look at look at Fabian Nicieza, with his X-Men history there. Um, so then after that. Adam X Extreme became like a footnote. You saw him in like a few issues here and there. You saw him in Captain Marvel, uh, issue two and three, written by Fabian Nicieza. This is the um, Captain Marvel series that featured the son of the original Captain Marvel, so Janice Val. And it has Eric the Red, and it has the first appearance of the Crystal Claws, and it has Adam X, and it feels like, Fabian Nietzsche wrote this miniseries just so he could talk about Adam X some more. And we get the introduction or we get the revelation that Adam X, uh, was bred to introduce a hybrid of specific genetic potential into the Shi'ar monarchy and that he is the only living child of Magester Ken. And Deken is straight from those Cochram issues that I was reading, um, with Eric the Red and uh, the first appearance of L- of Lalandra and the McCran Crystal. And so we find out that uh, Adam X is basically heir to the Empire. And there's like a hint here that he might be obviously more than Shi'ar, maybe human. So what does that mean? And then, like I said, he pops up in like Dark Avengers, in S.W.O.R.D. Eventually, I know he shows up a little bit within like all of this Hickman, X-Men stuff. Which leads us to X-Men Legends number one and number two. Fabian Nicieza, Brett Booth, Adelso Corona, uh, Guru FX on colors, Joe Caramagna on letters. This supposedly takes place after issue X-Men issue 39, the issue with uh, Scott's grandfather, but it also takes place after those Captain Marvel issues, which came out in 1995. And Adam X just wants to be left alone, but of course he is all caught up again into a chase. Um, he He's wanted by Eric the Red, he's wanted by the Crystal Claws, he's wanted by the Shi'ar Empire, and the Starjammers, they make an appearance. Eric the Red goes after Philip and Deborah Summers, the grandparents of Scott and Alex, which brings Scott and Alex into the fray. And Eric the Red wants them to go after Adam X, which they do. We see the origin of Adam X, where he was kind of grown like in a Matrix-like bubble and stolen away, because if anyone knew of his existence, he probably would have been killed. And he was named Adam. Now, as he was stolen away, we see another container, another bubble, with the word Eve. And Adam says, I never asked what other secrets I left behind. So, not only do we have this Adam character, is Fabian Ichieza trying to layer yet another sibling on top of the Summers? Perhaps a sister? Weird. Awkward. It's never brought up again. But there you go. Another Chris Claremontian uh, subplot left in the wind. So then at the end of X-Men Legends number one, Corsair comes into the fray. And he says to both Scott and Alex, say hello to your brother, and then shoots him. Leading us to X-Men Legends number two, where we find out that Adam X, all of his organs are scrambled, so a shot to the head doesn't mean anything. His brains are apparently in one of his ass cheeks. Yikes. That's 90s. Corsair goes on to drop knowledge that Adam is a half-brother, and that Decan used... The genetics of their mother, Catherine, um, to to create some create an heir, and that's where we get Adam X, and that's why he's a half brother. Cyclops even brings up in this issue that Sinister once taunted him about having multiple brothers, which is a, a which is a surprise to Corsair because he's like, wait, what? And then that made me think, okay, well then, how did Claremont? Um, make Gambit turn into a Summers brother because he would have had to have been a child of of Christopher, of Corsair, right? Because Catherine's dead, isn't she? I don't know. So yeah, very strange, very strange. They wind up on the blue area of the moon. They're going to take Adam back to the Shi'ar Empire. They defeat Eric the Red. Um, Oh, in the previous issue... In issue number one, you really get a clue as to who he is because he tries to use his powers on the Star Jammers and on Cyclops and Havoc, but it doesn't work on Cyclops and Havoc. And then they in turn blast Adam X and he stands there and says, was that supposed to hurt? So their powers don't affect each other. And if you know anything about Scott and Alex, Cyclops and Havoc, their powers don't affect each other because they're brothers, right? So there's your real big clue before Corsair says hello to your brother that Adam X is probably a summer's brother. So anyway, back to issue two, they are on on the blue area of the moon and Havoc at one point calls the Inhumans and says, look, don't get involved. Which was kind of funny because years later they would get involved or years before because there was a whole event uh, with the Inhumans and the Shi'ar and the Kree and it was called War of Kings. So uh, whether Fabian was kind of alluding to that or not, I don't know. And then the Imperial Guard show up. Yay! Love them. And they all go to Lalandra and Adam says, look, I have a way about this. Here's what we do. Let's just wipe everybody's minds. And that's what they do. They just wipe everybody's minds. And that's why 30 years after this story supposedly is supposed to take place, no one remembers that Adam X is a Summer's brother, which is a little bit of a cheat, but I, I guess that's the easy way out. And then this issue as well ends with people monitoring the X-Men First up, we have Mr. Sinister watching Adam X as he returns to Earth to live out a quiet life. And then we have someone watching Mr. Sinister. And when you look at the gauntlet, the red gauntlet and the green cape, I was like, wait a minute. Is that the Stranger who first appeared in X-Men number 11? Now, the Stranger was wrapped up with another Adam, Adam Warlock. And I was like, "Hmm." That's curious. Is, I guess that's another subplot that Fabian Nietzsche will, will wait 30 years to, to wrap up. But I I like these first two issues. You know, again, it's a 30-year-old story that finally gets resolved. I liked it for pure nostalgia reason reasons. The writing, the artwork, the pacing, the page layout, the design, it all screams 90s X-Men when they ruled supreme. And I also liked it because it connected to the X-Men Cockrum Burn issues that I just read. And I love how the tapestry just continues to be layered regardless of, you know, what what decade you're reading from. There's also a Summer's Family Tree at the end of issue two that I had to kind of like study. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute, wait. Oh, okay. I see where this makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. Okay. So X-Men Legends, X-Men Legends one and two. I don't know if I'll read any other ones. Uh, apparently issue 3 is the Simonsons returning to x factor um, but it sounds like a fun concept and um, for at least this part of the story this adam x story i was happy to read those issues this piece is my recital i think, I think it's, it's very vital to rock. rock that's right on top it's tricky we uh, go This or that Thursday. I'm totally stealing this from from a TikTok uh, theme. (laughs) So this or that. So I have 10 uh, pairings here that I want you to pick from. Uh, You pick one or the other. This or that, right? And the idea here is I don't want you to just pick your favorites. Because here's the parameter. If you pick one over the other in your world, in your selection, that means the other no longer exists. For instance, if I were to say an easy one like DC or Marvel, and say you picked DC, well, that means there is no Marvel Comics. And maybe that means someone like Roy Thomas never gets into the comic industry, which means there's no such thing as All-Star Squadron or Infinity, Inc. or Eric's Son of Thunder or whatever else that Roy Thomas created for DC. Or if you pick DC over Marvel, George Perez, I think, uh, had his first stories at Marvel. So maybe George Perez doesn't become George Perez or does it does it in a different way, you know? Or if you pick marvel over dc well then maybe there's no squadron supreme because there is no justice league for them to base their characters on or there's no imperial guard or there's no i don't know maybe jack kirby doesn't create the fantastic four or doesn't create um, the X Men, you know, doesn't create the Fantastic Four because Challengers of the Unknown doesn't exist, or doesn't create the X Men because Doom Patrol doesn't exist. I don't know, you know, I'm I'm sort of generalizing here, but you get the point. If you pick one, the other one and all of its ramifications and all of its tradition and legacy does not exist. So it's, it's so this this or that is, as I said, not about favorites. Maybe it's about which one you think is more important to your comic reading or or publishing in, in general. I don't know. It could be fun. It could be fun to think of it in those terms. So I'll throw you a few easy ones here, or maybe ones that might seem a little obvious. So here we go. The first one, the first this or that out of 10. There are 10 choices here. Thanos or Dark Side. Right? That seems to be a common one. Which one do you want? And which one goes away? Meaning that all their stories go away, all of their stories in other media go away, all of their just everything, everything just goes away. Number two, Blade the movie or Iron Man the movie? Number three, back issue comics or new comics? Here's a silly one that I just put together because the names are so familiar. Fritz the Cat, the movie, or Friz Freeling, the creator. Let's stick to with creators here. Alan Grant, or Grant Morrison, the Kubert brothers, or the Hernandez brothers. Which one do you keep and which one do you send away to, to limbo forever? Okay, four more here. They might get tougher. Alex Ross or Alex Toth. And then we have Action Comics or Detective Comics. Hmm. That's a quandary. And then we have, which one do you keep? This or that? Fantastic Four number one or Showcase number four? Which one do you keep? Which one do you let go? And everything that happens because of that issue goes away as well. And then finally, which one do you pick? This or that? Jack Kirby or Will Eisner? Dun, dun, dun. All right, there you go. 10 choices for this or that Thursday. Let me know what you picked. Let me know what you picked and why. Feedback! Feedback Friday. It's a new month. It is November, so I get to look at the feedback that I received in October, starting with Corwin on Twitter, one of the co-hosts of the EMP-EMX podcasts, uh, talking about Digest from October 3rd, episode 523, uh, mentions that Corin as well loved Kang more than I thought I would. It blew me away. I'm all in, and yeah, I'm looking forward to catching up uh, with that miniseries and with the origin of Kang. Also from Twitter, this is about digest from the digest from October 23rd, episode 527, the DC Fandom edition. Uh, Brett from the Marvel Plus podcast. Uh, says, I agree. I don't need to see any more trailers for the Batman. I'm good with what we got. And the flash is increasingly exciting. How great would that be to see Grant show up on the big screen? I hope they do that. They really should, you know, return the favor. Uh, you had the movie flash on the small screen, get the, get the TV flash up on the big screen. Uh, Chuck Dr. Pop Culture BGSU called that particular DC Fandom episode most informative. And then Steven of the Just Another Fanboy and Event or Else podcast uh, said, I'm excited for Black Adam, if for nothing else than seeing Aldous Hodge as Hawkman. And that's something that I've seen a lot. I've seen a lot of people um, just really excited for that actor. I don't know their work, but um, I guess I will, you know, soon enough become familiar with their work. On episode 528, the Timeline Tuesday episode, uh, Chris Beckett on Twitter says, Barry Windsor Smith's Storyteller would be an all-time great book if, if it had continued. 40 pages, oversized, monthly, three stories, Barry Windsor Smith doing New Gods and Conan Homages with a twist, plus a time-warped story. Gorgeous art. And then Matt Williams wrote in and said, I just finished the Timeline Tuesday episode focusing on Jon Stewart. Jon was supposed to appear in the Ryan Reynolds movie as played by Nick Jones, who grew up here in Montgomery. Uh, And then Matt provided an article with Nick Jones Matt continues, I have never seen the Green Lantern movie, but neither Nick Jones or Jon Stewart is listed on the IMDb page, so I think his scenes were cut. I tried to look for a deleted scene. I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find much information about that. Um, What I did find was a Nick Jones Jr. under the, um, not the cast, but under the uh, creative side of things, listed as a tactical advisor, so I'm not sure if that is the same person. Matt continues, I also thought it was neat that the film In the Heat of the Night came up in the conversation in reference to Jon Stewart being modeled after Sidney Poitier. As there is another Green Lantern connection to In the Heat of the Night, Jeffrey Thorne, the current writer on Green Lantern, uh, Green Lantern, played Wilson Sweet on the In the Heat of the Night TV show. And then also big thanks to people who liked or retweeted, uh, you know, when I put out that there's a new podcast, like Ed Moore and Chris Beckett Sedano, Billy of the Into the Weird podcast, Chris L, Charlton Hero, Cliff R, Adrian, Adam S, Daryl, uh, Sleepy Reader, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Julian Lytle, Troy Wilson, Eric from uh, the Longbox Review. I also have some addendums here to some previous digests to the um, DC Fandom digest. Uh, there were a couple other notes that I didn't mention, one of them being that the, that the actress playing Lois is a candy hoarder, and she puts bags of candy all around the set. I thought that was fun to see. And I really liked that they used the twins from Superman and Lois uh, quite often, you know, in different places. Throughout Fandom, whether they were introducing segments or they were part of a segment, you know, with Superman and Lois, it just was really nice to see them wrapped up into the larger DC family um, after just, you know, bursting onto the scene with the TV show that is not even a year old yet. So I thought that was great. I also, even though I haven't been watching it, uh, the casting of Michelle Gomez as Madame Rouge... Is brilliant that is just brilliant casting if you know the character from the comics so uh, that's old news and you know that season has already been released but I just think I just think that's great it really makes me want to watch the show now um, and then also I had some addendums to some recent m- new-to-me musicals I was talking about back to the future and Diana on Netflix And then found out that there is a movie called Cyrano, which is also based on a play featuring Peter Dinklage. And then they are making a a movie musical. It's already soon to be released, I think, of Tick, Tick, Boom, although it has some stunt casting, um, which means uh, they're putting in actors as the characters as opposed to, you know, musical theater actors. Um, But I think that's being directed by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Um, so look for those two musicals and that's it. That's it for this digest. You can email me, Peter at the daily would love to hear your thoughts about the episode or leave a comment on the website. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Follow the Instagram, the daily Rios. Go live, leave a, um, review on iTunes. If you are a podcaster or you have a Kickstarter coming up or you're a creator or whatever, and you want to send me some audio promos to use as bumpers, please do. Uh, If you want to leave feedback in audio form, you can send me an mp3 uh, or an audio file, and I will include it on a Talk Back Tuesday segment. This has been The Daily Rios, Episode 530, The 18th Digest, for Sunday, November 7th, 2021. Talk to you soon. I wish I could play like the other kids, but I have asthma. I'm afraid if I play, I'll get breathless. It's a bird! It's a plane! It's Superman! Kids with asthma don't have to sit out the good times. Now there's a fun self-help kit from the American Lung Association called Super Stuff. Every Super Stuff kit full of games and puzzles comes with information that helps kids and parents learn about asthma. Follow your doctor's orders and get some coaching from Super Stuff. Contact your American Lung Association.